Hello, and welcome to episode 11 of the Sounding Board podcast. I'm Rob Langham, and as we close in on a year in the job, I'm happy to welcome back Ben Woolhead as he maintains his 100% attendance record. Hello, Ben. Hello. And we have a new guest, Brian Gerin, former bandmate of our third co-founder, Neil Kennedy, and a man of Cork. That's me, yeah. Uh, Thanks very much, guys. Uh, Very happy to be here. Great. Okay, so we'll crack on. I should say, before we start, and without making this too personal, um, we'd like to congratulate Neil, who appeared on the majority of the podcast this year, on being the father of a new baby girl, Flora. So um, congratulations to all of us. Yep. Um, First of all, fellas, any news this week that's caught your eye, or in the last couple of weeks, say? Um, well, it's actually a bit more than a couple of weeks, but given where our focus this, this week is on, um, or this issue, this episode is on um, uh, live music, um, I thought I'd just mention a few of the gigs that um, I've been to in the last, in the last few weeks. Um, the first of which was Audioscope, uh, at the beginning of November, um, all, in, all here in Oxford these are, um, and I actually went to that with Brian. Uh, and it's an annual um, music event, uh, generally pretty left-field stuff, um, organised in aid of shelter. Uh, this year's event uh, was kicked off by the Oxford Guitar Orchestra, um, which featured uh, ride drummer Loz Colbert uh, playing drums and then a whole host of people playing guitar, including um, members of Young Knives. Um, and their their performance was a 20-minute long one chord song uh, called Guitar Trio, which is a, a piece by from 1977 by the avant-garde composer Rhys Chatham. Um, and it gives you a flavour of the evening to say that that was the most accessible thing <laughs> of the night, I would say. And it was excellent, really, really good. Um, then there was uh, Ben Duval of X Easter Island Head, who was doing sort of sound art and prepared guitars on a table in front of the uh, in the middle of the crowd, which was really fascinating to watch actually close up. Um, Tamago were next. That's half. That's the rhythm section, I think, of of the oscillation. Um, who've played previous audioscope events or, or event anyway, um, and they were really fascinating, ri- really rhythmically inventive. Um, and then it was headlined by Nort, who've also played previous event. Um, they're a sort of uh, free jazz meets Jesus Lizard type band, completely mind boggling. Mm-hmm. Um, the guitarist sort of lead lead member is. Uh, James Sedwards, who's an Oxford local, he's actually now um, part of the of Thurston Moore's band. Um, then, uh, after that, I went to see Three Trap Tigers, uh, who was supported by the Physics House Band. Um, very, very sort of uh, technical bands. Also very visceral, though, very impressive. There's a sort of battles element, I think, to Three Trap Tigers. But uh, the, most, the most impressive thing about both bands were their, their drummers. Two, two of the best drummers I think I've ever seen on the same bill. Um, then uh, Rob and I and Ronan who's been a previous guest on, on the podcast went to see the Wave Pictures at the Cellar um, they're quite an interesting band thing, aren't they? sort of a mixture of talking heads and modern lovers um, they've got quite a sort of clean sound new wavy sort of pop um, I was surprised to read actually since going to the gig that they're now nine albums in uh, that's their ninth album they were touring um, it's called A Season in Hull um, <laughs> And then the final one, the most recent gig, was um, Honeyblood at the Bullingdon, uh, of which I'm sure there'll be more talk later on. Yes, Honeyblood is going to be our album of the week, or album of the month, I should say. Um, Brian, what, what tidbits have you got for us? I have a couple of pieces of help for anyone doing Christmas shopping at this seasonal time of year. Um, <laughs> for that person in your life who likes the Beastie Boys and shoes, um, <laughs> search no longer. Adam Adrock Horowitz has designed a pair of sneakers in collaboration with Keep, um, the profits from the sales of the shoes are going to a charity so you can find those online if you're interested and the second potential stocking filler I saw was Moby's autobiography which I heard discussed on another podcast um, and Moby is not just somebody who released one very successful album which was used in a lot of adverts and bored us all in 1998 <laughs> he had a very long career before that in punk music and also techno um, so the book seems to be a very good uh, exploration of those music scenes uh, over those two decades of somebody who was was very much in the underground, um, and uh, and also he he did write this himself. It's a proper autobiography, not a ghost written thing. Right. So he's reaching mm-hmm. back to his his ancestor um, who wrote Moby Dick. Um, help me out here, uh, Herman Melville. <laughs> um, so 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 he's got some some pedigree there as well. Um, so so that's that's something you could look into. He's got a very interesting, like I say, very interesting backstory because I remember seeing him um, 
the first ever festival I went to, Reading '96, and he was doing his sort of yeah, his punk thing, wasn't he? And he was playing, he was covering Paranoid and things, Black Sabbath, and then three years later, he's releasing Play, which is a completely different yeah type of music. Yeah, certainly an interesting character. Um, You know, I think that sounds like a great read. And I think at some point in 2017, we're going to be devoting a whole podcast to music books. So look out for that one. That should be coming probably in about the midpoint of the year. Um, Quick word from me, completely selfless self-promotion or selfish self-promotion. I have had a post uh, published on the Toppermost website, which is a site that is devoted to the sort of top 10 favorite tracks of like a range of bands um there are over 500 now i think about 570 580 bands covered there um and you can go on and see who's already been done and who hasn't done absolutely terrific website and i devoted my um top 10 to orbital which was quite difficult to kind of home in on 10 given that they produced a lot of albums over their fine career um and i was very very pleased with the uh, response to that on Twitter in particular and if you want to follow Toppermost on Twitter Merrick Davidson who is the head honcho of Toppermost and smashing fella um, goes by the name at Aging Raver um, so um, that's how you can follow him if he's at Aging Raver I don't know what that makes me probably geriatric <laughs> Raver or geriatric never really was a Raver but anyway um, look out for that I'm pretty happy with it um, so news done and dealt with Today's topic for discussion, as alluded to earlier on, is live music, how it's changed over the years and its current state. Um, We feel that there's quite some interesting things to say here. Um, So first of all, I just wanted to quickly sort of start off by talking about some of our favourite venues. Um, Brian, can I start with you? What what do you think makes a good venue? Well, well, thinking back to all of my favourite live music experiences, there isn't a whole lot um, of of common points between the different places where they were. I've been at gigs in dirty upstairs rooms in pubs, in underground rooms, in stadia, in in all sorts of sizes, in, in, in tents at, a, at, a, at festivals. Um, the only thing that's most important that, that stands out for them is that the, the venue shouldn't be too big. Um, whether there's 20 people watching or, or 20,000 people watching, you don't want a load of gaps in the crowd. I think it, it's something that can, uh, can really detract to the atmosphere. Um, there are places that I'd rather be in than others. Um, so regardless of how the band is playing, I, I'd rather be in a, in a good pub that has a nice atmosphere and you know isn't one of these you know, soulless venues that are springing up around the country. Um, but that that doesn't really have too much to do with the live music. Um, there's a there's there's probably somewhere like like the Wheatsheaf here in Oxford in every town around mm. the country where you know if you've got twenty or thirty people, it feels like like you're you're at the only place in the world where music is playing. It, it's 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 very um, very atmospheric and very full and probably that's still my favourite place to go for, for a gig is a small local pub where you don't, might not necessarily know the band very well um, but you know you're going to be right up close to them um, that's yeah. important for me I think it's interesting you mentioned the Wheat Sheep as it is if anybody doesn't know it it's this very kind of scuzzy rocky <laughs> kind of venue but you know immense fun and real tradition there I mean I was thinking about this in relation to sort of what my favourite current venue is and it's changed a lot over the years but I think the Shacklewell Arms in uh, Dalston in London has become a real favourite. Um, it's very zeitgeisty, very much part of that ludicrous hipster scene. But they do have some genuinely good bands on, including the Physics House Band, who I saw once, who Ben mentioned a bit earlier. And, um, you know, they're very, very good at getting people in. And it's got like a kind of real ramshackle vibe to it. So um, that would be one of my special uh, special places, I think, at the moment. Uh, ben, what about you? What are your um, thoughts? Well, sort of general points. I think um, with Brian, there's, there's lots of different venues that I enjoy. Um, but I think I generally... I would generally say I like an elevated stage so the band can actually be seen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I'm quite tall, so I, I often don't have problems seeing anyway. But I do like an elevated stage. Generally, I think the Jericho Tavern here in Oxford is a bit of an awkward setup where the stage isn't that high, and often you can be standing low, well, quite a bit lower than the stage and lower than the people in front of you in places. Um, but then that said, proximity to an audience, I think, is also um, important sometimes. So bands actually playing in the thick of a small crowd can be quite intense, actually breaking that sort of fourth war as it were so lightning bolt I think we've seen play in the middle of a room yeah. um, I saw Sly and the Family Drone in the Wheat Chief actually play in the middle of the room as well um, I don't necessarily have that I've never been to a stadium gig I will say that um, but I, so I would say I, the venue can be large 
but it needs to have, I think, a high ceiling without suffering acoustic problems. It's one of my real bugbears about Oxford that the biggest venue is the, the downstairs room at the Academy and it's got a very low ceiling. The sound is terrible and it's got an obscured view if you're anywhere near the back. Um, purpose-built venues often, to me, seem a bit soulless. Um, they can be a bit pristine. I like the sort of the grit and the dirt, like you are saying. Uh, I like a venue that might have carpet, but it's impossible to tell what pattern or colour it was at some time, <laughs> like the Wheat Chief. Right. Um, I also really like, I do really like underground venues as well, actually going downstairs to go, so like the cellar here, um, the old um, Barfly in Cardiff as well, I'm not sure that's reopened as a venue, I think it might have done, um, but yeah, that, you're actually going downstairs into a, into a venue. But then also what I would say is that it's not just about physical structure as well, um, the sound system is vital, the quality of that, but not just that, it's actually having someone who knows how to use it. So here in, in Oxford again, the Wheat Chief, uh, Joel Shearing, um, an excellent sound man, knows the venue, knows the sound kit, um, which is really important. And then there's also obviously the promoters and the owners. Um, so people who are passionate about music and able to continually attract good bands, I think that's also really valuable. So venues like the Brunel Social Club in Leeds, I'm always staggered about the gigs that they get. Um, they, they get pretty much anything good that goes anywhere near Leeds. Yeah. Um, clearly they've got a very good owner and, and promoter sort of set up there. Uh, Brian, I mean, I'd like to ask you your opinion from another point of view on this, and that's as a performer. Um, when you were in a band, you know, what did you feel were the ingredients that made for a good venue? I'm not sure if I can uh, allow myself to be called a performer with a straight face. Um, <laughs> uh, for, for when I was standing on a stage playing the bass guitar, um, I, to be honest, I, I enjoyed anywhere where the, the, the audience response was good. It, it always feels nice to play a larger venue than normal, but we have been in this situation or a few times when I was in bands where you're looking out at a, a venue that would probably be good for 200 people um, and there's you know 30 or 40 there if you're on early in the bill um, and and that doesn't feel so rock and roll. From, from when you're on the stage, the sound desk doesn't make a whole lot of difference. Uh, it, if you've got a good sound on there, you'll get a good mix on stage. So that that is very important for when you're playing to be comfortable and, and to think you're doing well. Um, however, you can be hearing something completely different to what's going on in the crowd. Um, and we'd often have the experience of coming off stage and someone saying that sounded good. And then we'd be looking at each other going, no, that's not at all what we were hearing. So it's it, it, if you've got a good sound set up at the, at the venue, um, it, it can be important for the band. Um, but in terms of size, um, it feels good to be playing a bigger venue. You might have a backstage room, it makes you feel special. But uh, you, you, you do still absolutely have to have the, the crowd um, up close um, and in, in good numbers and in, in good voice as well. Yeah. Um, and, and when you've got those there, you might as well be standing uh, on the landing at somebody's house party. Um, that's, that, that, that's the kind of feeling you want to have, um, yeah. the, the feeling of, uh, of having a good time. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the venue can't really do too much to, to send you off if, if the crowd is, is in good form. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned there like a, a venue that maybe houses about 200 people and about 30 or 40 there. I did see your band a few years ago at the barn in uh, at Truck Festival, which if anybody hasn't come across it before, has rather a strong odour of the farmyard, <laughs> shall we say, to the extent that my girlfriend refused to stay any longer in, in said venue. Um, which brings me for a little bit short, short discussion of, of quirky venues, of like places that are a bit unusual, you know, like churches or, or etc. Mm. Well, a couple I would say I really like. Um, one's the Camden Roundhouse. Yes. Um, I think yeah. that's an absolutely fantastic venue. It's a former railway engine shed. Um, the visibility there, I just mentioned the uh, sort of elevated stage, the visibility is superb wherever you are, I think. Um, the Sonics are great, um, and it's steeped in history. I think it's where the Ramones played their first UK show, I think. Mm. Um, I've seen a few things there now, and, and really memorable shows, and it's it's just a great venue. Um, my other, possibly my favourite ever venue was the, the Point in Cardiff, which was down by, um, down by the bay. It was a, a deconsecrated church, um, so the Sonics were naturally pretty good. Um, it played host to a pretty astonishing run of gigs um, when I lived there, which was about 10 years ago. Um, so the first one we're going to was Broken Social Scene, supported by a very youthful Lost Campesino, so they'd handpicked mm. to support them. And then in the space of the next six months, I saw <clears throat> um, Yola Tengo and Acid Mother's Temple on consecutive nights, Melvin's and The Fall, all there. Um, I remember particularly doing the, the Melvin show, um, looking up in the air and seeing pint glasses flying through the air and realising it was underneath a vaulted ceiling and thinking it just felt all a bit wrong. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, um, 
it's one of those things where it's in a in a sort of a, a res, become like a residentialish sort of area. So there's flats there, and there was NIMBY complaints about noise, uh, which resulted in them having to put in a suspended ceiling and noise control measures. Um, unfortunately, and they reopened, but unfortunately, the cost uh, and the the sort of money they'd lost due to the closure put the venue out of business. So it's a real sore point for me that because it was a great great venue. Um, and it's it's such a loss to to Cardiff and that that particular area as well, which has also lost the um, the uh, coal exchange, which uh, was a venue at times. I saw Mogwai there. Um, I don't think lots of lots of people played there, but I think that's that's currently still standing empty. I think hmm. so. It's a real loss to that part of the part of the city. I think. So on the not so great front, we did mention the kind of you know slightly more. Um, prosaic kind of corporate venues of which you have already mentioned the O2 Academy here in Oxford um, and its various spawn across the country including Brixton which I think a lot of people would say is still one of the classic British venues um, but is under that Carling O2 kind of um, aegis at the moment um, are they a complete scourge or and like an absolutely diabolical element of the live scene in Britain or do you think there is a place for them? They do bring bands of a certain size into a wider range of towns than you would otherwise yeah. get. And there is a structure attached to them of, of certain promoters and, and uh, touring bands who will come along and, and, and play there. Um, half the time they seem to be full of covered bands, which is, is not really <laughs> something you, you necessarily need. Um, but yeah, I, I think but perhaps in Oxford we, we've, we've had a decent venue of that size for some time and we, we probably yearn for the thing that was there beforehand. Yeah, um, I don't know what you think. Um, well, I mean, I've I've never been to a stadium gig, so that kind of corporate thing is is, is you know I'm not can't really comment on that. Um, it's the price that puts me off that kind of thing. I, I willingly go to gigs at the academy because the upstairs room I think actually is a really nice size, nice size mm-hmm. stage, and the sounds really good. Downstairs, I I go very much against my better judgment. I yeah. think um, the problem, the big problem for me. It's not the sound, really, or the stage or anything like that. I think they're good. Well, certainly upstairs are good. The problem is it's the drinks, I think. The yeah. fact that you're now paying £5.10 for a pint of Tuborg. Um, I mean, it has a, a sh- one shelf, I think, full of Hobgoblin. It's a, a sort of comment on the, uh, the the gigs that I go to generally, that that shelf gets cleared straight away by the blokes there, and then there's nothing left good to drink. Um, I mean, I'd also have, have issues with things like the... Um, booking fees and the card charges that get added on all yeah. the time and there's no there's no sort of indication of what they might actually involve it just seems like an extra charge um on the on the positive side though to touch on what brian said is that um and talking about a cover band my my friends who we did mention on a previous podcast who in um in alvana now they the corporate network can work for bands because they actually had the tour set up um touring academy venues because they've got got in the foot in the door in Newcastle, course, yeah. and that's been really really helpful to them. So, for for their perspective, they've had um, the professionalism of having people behind the scenes. You know, people behind the scenes. I think professionals. The facilities are good. Um, as a punter, yeah, I think it's a di- maybe a different story. But but for the bands, they've they've had a very positive experience. To be honest. Yes, I mean, I think there are some plus points. I mean, I just think they're not that far away from maybe slightly. You know, if they just tone down the kind of corporate nature a bit and like introduced a bit of kind of craft beer or real ale, maybe some more interesting snacks, you know, maybe just made it less uniform across all the venues. Because I think all of us have been to the one in Oxford, the one in Bristol, the one in London. And of course, the original um, buildings are often like still spectacular and the actual spaces like the upstairs at the O2 in Oxford are still good. But if they could just make it less the branding, you know, like it would be less objectionable. And actually, I mean, I noticed when I've been to the last few gigs, at the Carling Academy that um, only 10% of the punters are drinking and that's probably partly because of cost although probably mainly cost because we're in a student area but also because of the sort of choice of drinks and I mean is that what Carling want? I mean surely wouldn't they rather have you know 50% of the people or more enjoying a drink you know because it's affordable and there was a better choice so it does puzzle me really I mean it's just a lot of people just sitting there standing there like lemons with no drink for like three hours yeah and uh or and you know I I just think someone hasn't got that right in terms of the supply chain so yeah it's um, up to the other venues in town really to offer that better choice to have yeah a bit more space left over for the larger bands to to work with with more organized promoters to bring in those, those better bands and to then use the fact that they've got a better range of drinks to to compete yeah I, I, there's quite a lot of 
you know, venues of a slightly smaller size in Oxford, and I could find myself not really having to go to the O2 to see a decent band for, for months. Yeah, I mean, certainly the Bullingdon at the moment um, has got a you know, tremendous that's line. That's terrific, of, yeah. I mean, of, of, um, that's that's largely down to um, one promoter, again, I'm talking about the quality of the promoter. I mean, yeah. uh, Simon at, at Future Perfect is putting on a lot of gigs there. To be fair, he's also putting things on at the Academy, um, but he, he's, he's doing a lot of things for the Bullingdon, and it's made it a real, a real sort of place to go again. I think it had a bit of a sort of fallow period for quite a while. Um, yeah. But it's definitely... And they do have... A better range of drinks. They do. I used yeah. to. I mean, I used to. I've not been to because because the Jericho Tavern seems to have lost a lot of interest in music. Interestingly, mm. um, but but I did used to quite like going there because you were guaranteed of at least having a. De- it was expensive, but at least had a guarantee of a decent drink when you were yeah. there. Yeah, yeah. Um, and that was a complete contrast to to the academy. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I mean, quick question actually about you know how well covered Britain is, and I would be interested to hear about Ireland as well in terms of the ease of seeing bands away from geographical centres. I'll start off by saying that actually it can be a disadvantage if a band are playing too remotely, because I saw the Flaming Lips once in about seven miles outside Northampton in Massachusetts, and uh, it was way too isolated, you know, like no one actually had bought a drink there because everybody had had to drive. And, um, you know, I feel like America, I'm sure it'd be really interesting to hear from any American listeners, maybe on Twitter, at SoundingBoard69, just to hear whether you feel if you're in, say, Nashville or Tucson or whatever, you know, do you get to see nationally known bands, etc. But what do you think about the UK, first of all, Ben, on, on the geographical Well, coverage? on the geographical front, I think there's there's, there's huge swathes of the UK that, that don't seem to have the coverage. You know, anywhere sort of southwest of Bristol, southwest beyond Bristol, yeah. um, all of Wales north of Cardiff and Swansea, pretty much. Mm. Um, most of Scotland north of Glasgow and Edinburgh. Uh, I mean, obviously, Neil will be the person to ask about this but he's, he's not here I did I did recall um, Idlewild doing I think they might have done it more than once doing a tour of the Scottish Highlands and Islands but mm. I think that's really quite unusual um, here in Oxford we have a slightly different problem in that um, bands will often bypass Oxford because it's too close to London mm-hmm. um, but then we can't really gripe because we can get into London without too much trouble um, I mean what I would say is that I'd, it is it is a shame um but I think it's kind of inevitable, and ultimately, economic viability, I guess, is the is the key. So it it does make more economic sense for bands to focus on populous places, um, and then the transport links, hopefully, into those places are better than they would be to somewhere that was more remote. Yeah. Um, but I haven't, you know, I've never had been in a position of of living too far away from somewhere that was uh, a reasonable size. I was I was living not too far away from Newcastle. I've lived in the middle of Nottingham, I've lived in the middle of Birmingham, in the middle of Cardiff, so it's all been, and then close to Oxford, so I've not really had this problem, whereas I think Neil, I think on the um, record shop episode, which was episode three, I think Neil was talking about how his nearest record shop was in Aberdeen, I think, which was miles and miles away from home, and I'm sure it's the same sort of problem with, with gig venues. Um, How about in Ireland, Brian? Hmm. Well, it, it, it's difficult in Ireland. I'm from Cork, the second biggest city in, in the Republic, so I guess in that sense it, it's... In nationally, it plays the kind of role of of Sheffield over here, except it's got one hundred and fifty thousand people in it. So, mm. if you're a, a mid sized band, you're not necessarily going to go out there expecting to make your money back on tickets or on merch. Mm. Um, and I remember growing up there and, and being mad about all these bands playing metal and, and hardcore and punk music, and just never having a chance of them to see them if they drop by. Occasionally, mm. we go up to Dublin to see them, um, but it, there was a very vibrant local music scene, and we just yeah. we just knew that unless we were going to go up to Dublin to see you know, um, Rage Against the Machine or whoever was touring at the time, um, we, we weren't going to be able to see them anywhere closer to home. Um, and it is the economics. Um, yeah. Is that the same problem for being in a band as well? And that if you wanted to get yourself known, you would know you'd have to play in Dublin rather than playing in Cork? Well, we'd have to move to Berlin or London. That's what people we knew were doing. Really? You, you, there was a very, very small music scene in Dublin um, in, in terms of the music industry. Um, compared to Oxford even, you wouldn't really expect to get much radio play. There's a, a decent local... Um, a BBC introducing here in Oxford which helps bands up there's a route to get into playing festivals as well which seems to there seems to be more choice in terms of, of that step up to playing different sorts of venue um, in, in Ireland there are festivals of course there are things like that going on but it is a much smaller scene and it's that harder to break in whereas the, the bigger bigger cities um, will give you more opportunities or there's more networks for you to work with um, in, in terms of, of playing playing gigs and uh, and getting a good crowd when, when you I was touring with a smaller band um, you you would hope that the smaller towns would 
would show out in force if they don't normally get a lot of bands showing up. But it, that was that was also quite hit, hit and miss. Um, I mean, I know we're, we're close to Oxford, so you might expect people to travel from London to Oxford if there's a band they like showing up. But I remember seeing Don Caballero playing in the old Regal, um, and I think the Regal could take maybe 400,000 people. That was a very people. poorly attended gig, wasn't it? And the, the band were asking people between songs to buy merch so they didn't lose money. And that's, yeah. that's not a fun gig to be at. No, <laughs> um, no. Um, but, uh, yeah, you, you, um, you've just got to hope that people will show up and that the promoter's done their job. Yeah. 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 Um, so support bands, I, I've noticed a change um, over the years in that they used to be very fashionable to sit on the floor with your back to the support band, studiously ignoring them. <laughs> if not, probably in the punk era, actually kind of like trying to chase them off stage or like bottling them off stage. And these days people have got a lot more polite. Um any thoughts on the perfect support bands? I mean, I think you're both very interested to see who the support bands are. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think you generally will see one local support band, and I, I'd like to see that that continue. However, it should be a local support band whose style of music fits fairly well with the main headline, mm. not a local support band who the promoter picked because they have the most Facebook friends um, or because there's some other connection there. It is a bit jarring sometimes when you see a band turn up, they play their set, um, no one else seems to be interested apart from ten people up the front, and then those ten people leave. Um, yeah. That's not that's not really the role that the the local support should be should be playing. I think. Yeah, Ben. But well, I think I think a three a three band bill is is ideal, really. So you've got a you've got a local act giving a local act exposure, but I also think it's quite good for headliners to pick um, to a support because it gives a, a band that they value um, that experience of life on the road as well. So it's a kind of a happy medium now. I think. Um, <clears throat> I mean, what I would say is that. Some promoters do actively seek to program that sort of variety and juxtaposition. Um, I mean, one of the local promoters here in Oxford, Richard Castrol, who goes under the name uh, Gappy Tooth Industries, he he deliberately puts together very eclectic bills. Um, I think a band can only ever play one of his nights once, their monthly nights. Um, but he, he's quite happy to have that variety, and, he, and I think people who go to his gigs know that they're going to get that. But I think generally speaking, you get some kind of some kind of coherence. But what I would also say that. Um, there's sometimes a danger of it being too close. So I remember seeing um, Holy Fuck back in 2008 and they were supported by a band called Kelp who are basically the same thing but just not as good and it yeah. felt a bit strange. They were, they, they were fine but they weren't as good as, as Holy Fuck. Um, there's also that sort of danger I think for headliners in the, in picking tour support because you want to pick someone that you value and someone you think is good um, but you know, somebody might bring some kudos to you potentially Um but then you don't want them to be so good that they're going to outshine you, I think, which is a bit of a difficult difficult business. I mean, have you, have you been in that position before, Brian, that you kind of had that difficult dilemma of what to do? Um, well, when I was playing gigs? Yeah. We, well, because we, we were never really that, that big a name, um, we weren't that famous, you might not have, not have seen us in the, the hit parade. Um, <laughs> but we, we were always on the stage with other bands that were at a similar level, um, and the idea then is to at least not embarrass yourselves versus the guys who went on before you. Um, and it, it was more more about energy levels on stage. And now we, we were a quite noisy and loud band, so you know we, we tended to be okay. But if if we were on after a, a particularly twee band, it, it would just feel a bit jarring, and we'd have moments where we're thinking maybe we should should have tweaked our set a bit so, so to fit a bit more with the, with the tone of the overall lineup. Um, I think when you when you are playing. Uh, nights like the Gappy Tooth night where it's local bands there's a much there's much more space for you to have an eclectic film yeah, that, yeah, that works yeah. a lot better um, in fact the people who turn up to those sorts of gigs probably want to see a variety of music because they're they're not seeing, yeah. going to see a specific kind of band there's more chance to see something they like if it's a mixed thing. To, to be fair his gigs are, are more like a sort of snapshot of what's going on in and around Oxford aren't they? It's, yeah. not, it's not like a sort of put together as a coherent bill is it but um yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, a little word about audiences. I mean, my impression, forty years man and boy, is that they are far more supine than they used to be, and um, I don't know whether people agree. Um, well, I don't. I'm not sure. Honestly, going to compare it to the to the past or anything, but certainly, I think supine now. I would say yes. Um, the issue seems to be particularly pronounced in in Oxford. Um, there seems to be a bit of an attitude of, you know, here we are now entertain us that sort of passivity people have, have paid for the privilege of being entertained it's not unlike the situation with football as well I think really um, I think maybe 
is it the cost of attending means people are more judgmental and, and harder to please and hard, so maybe also we're talking about the bar prices I think the Honeyblood gig I mentioned before that was on a Saturday night and, and it got quite rowdy towards the end and it was quite busy it got quite rowdy towards the end and I suspect that's probably just because people were thinking that drinks were affordable and were drinking a lot as well that probably helps mm. um, so I think it, it also depends sometimes more on the, the day of the week that the gig is than, than the actual band um, audiences definitely seem to be more super high on school nights um, and there's some local promoters I think who are, who are specifically focusing on Friday and Saturdays because they're the only nights you'll be guaranteed to get well, sometimes a crowd at all, but but often you know definitely a, a lively crowd, responsive crowd. Um, but then, the, not only are they sometimes supine, but I also think there's also that issue with with talkativeness, which is just infuriating when you've gone to see, particularly when it's something quiet. I don't, I, I can never understand people who pay that extra money to go to a gig and then spend the whole time chatting when you could just stay in the pub and everyone would be happier, really. Yeah, so. I'm not sure if the audiences are getting more supine. I mean, I've I've had. I don't know, maybe maybe fifteen years of going to gigs, and it's it's up and down. Uh, in my experience, you, I've been at, at plenty of gigs over the years where the band have heckled the crowd and asked them to put some more energy into it. Um, over the last fifteen years, I don't know if, if I've, I've missed some golden age of, of, of um, live music <laughs> when everyone was mad up for every every band they saw. Um, I kind of was considering this question. I thought. Well, well, are people looking into their phones? Are they recording everything on, on video? Are they mm. trying to send pictures? I, I don't know if I've seen enough of that to make me think that that's made audiences detached across live music across across the world. There might be a, a bit of that here and there. Um, I, I think I agree with what Ben's saying about the midweek gigs, um, about you know, people people being not, not that enthralled by it. Um, and I, I think perhaps the city we're in as well does deserve its reputation. I think the ge- geographical aspect is an interesting one because I think you often seem to get bands will play in Oxford and seem to be a little bit they get they get an enthusiastic response between songs I think sometimes but I think they they you get the impression that they're feeling a little bit underwhelmed by what they're getting back and I think that's just the nature of Oxford crowds quite reserved and going to gigs elsewhere I think people do tend to be more in it more into it um yeah just just having been to gigs at other cities there does seem to be some kind of difference I think um, I mean, when I was interested, the only thing I would contradict myself on on this was that when I was at Truck Festival in the summer, some of the bands that I literally hadn't heard of, and I don't think I could tell you their names now, who broadly probably fit into the category of kind of emo, like basically all the 17, 18 year olds into it, there were certainly not supine audiences at those those bands, you know, there were mm-hmm. people who were really going for it. So it's perhaps... Uh, the slightly older Is it the gigs we're going to do you think chin stroking pitchforkers <laughs> who are more just well show us what you can do show us what you can do you know that's mm. maybe and we possibly fall into that mm. um, category you know we're possibly a little bit more well you know let's see how good you are first before we get excited so yeah, yeah to, to be honest I'm not that up for the mosh pit anymore so no. <laughs> I, yeah well yeah that works for me as well depends how cheap the bar is for me <laughs> I mean just to, we haven't actually got this on the official array of questions that prepared beforehand but I mean it's actually the most obvious thing of all but very very quickly in terms of like bands themselves what can the bands do because I can remember the real nadir for me was in the early noughties when I saw the Strokes who were the band of the age in terms of hype at the Brixton and they just stood there like a bunch of statues and it was the most boring gig I've ever been to has anybody got any thoughts on that you know just you know do you need a good lively kind of like front man and potentially yeah I think um you you want to see a band when you when you when you can sense that a band is a bit discomforted by the response they're getting. I think you just want to see them really put everything into it, and it's it's really encouraging to see. I think sometimes because I've seen some gigs where there's not been many people there, or the response has been quite flat, and the band's response has just been to to really go for it and yeah. play like. Um, I think I was talking about October Drift. I saw um, the uh, the South Sea Fest this year. Um, in a previous episode, and they they were playing in the Wedgwood Rooms, which is quite a big venue. They were playing um, at sort of two o'clock in the afternoon to about thirty people, I would say, and they 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 played like they were playing to a, a stadium. Yeah. Um, and it it made it really engrossing. There was kind of a self belief, and they they weren't going to stint on what they were giving out just because of what was out in front of them. Yeah. Um, which you know, some people might see as a bit laughable, but I thought it was I thought it was very very credible, really. Um, yeah, I mean, um, right, the next thing really I want to sort of question, and we're going to sort of concentrate on asking Brian about this, having okay. been in a band far more recently than, uh, or ever, compared to myself <laughs> yeah, and Ben. Yeah. Um, 
is the economics of, of, of gigging, you know, from all points of view. I mean, we'll talk about punters and like costs and that kind of thing in a minute. But um, first of all, from the point of view of the band, I mean, is it all the more important these days playing live because recorded output is hard to make money out of? We've talked about streaming on a previous episode and that, of course, the re- financial returns on that are not that brilliant. Um, you know, is it is it sort of, you know, a thing that kind of adds up, basically, financially? I think if you're in that really top level of band and musician around the world, then you can make money from the ticket price. If you're selling out large to tens of thousands of seater venues and the tickets are 50, 60, 70 pounds each, those guys are making good money off the tickets. Um, then you go down a, a level below that and bands that are still quite famous are touring um, medium-sized venues, maybe, maybe 20, 30 pounds. And there's bands in that bracket who are losing money if they don't do enough merch. Um, mm. If you've got three or four bands on the bill and everyone's got you know petrol, uh, travel expenses, you might have, there might be a band from the US who've got flight costs to, to consider as well. So I think it's important to tour to get yourself in front of the audience in order to make money, but not necessarily from the the, the, the sales of tickets. That's that, I mean, there's an awful lot of bands that we'd have heard of that are that can't do it on the back of that alone. They're, yeah. they're there to engage with the audience, to hopefully sell CDs, sell T-shirts, um, to try and build a more loyal following so that these people will, will then spend more money on the band and follow them to other venues and things like that. Um, there, there's just a, a bigger drop-off as well where um, where it, it just is not a, feasible as a job for a lot of people who are making music that we love. Yeah. Um, which, on the one hand, you think that's a, a great shame that this isn't happening, uh, that these guys aren't getting the financial reward we, we think they should get. But on the other hand, they're still making that music. Um, yes, yeah. It's it's something that people will still do. Um, so so yeah, I I I think that the, the the fact that people no longer have to buy a thing in order to listen to the music is has made a big difference. Um, if you buy a CD these days, it's almost like you're contributing to the Kickstarter for the band. You you you, <coughs> you could just go on YouTube and listen to it or on yeah. Spotify. Um, and that, that does mean that the bands want people to be more engaged in what they're doing, yeah. um, which which is probably what, what's driving a lot of bands to tour. Yeah. Any thoughts on this, Ben? Well, it's an interesting situation where um, it's not a case of making necessarily just a, a sharp thing to be making money through recorded output or through live live um, performance. Because if you if you make less money from recorded output, um, then it makes it harder to tour because band members have to have jobs. Um, and, and it's really hard then to get the, the time and the freedom to do it. I remember Los Campesinos. You would say they're a, a reasonable level band. I would say they they basically. I think they are touring now next year. But um, they they not long ago given up all hope of ever playing North America again because they weren't going to be able to, or you know, afford it or, or get the time off work basically because mm. they've all got to have other jobs. Um, one thing that I would one of the thing I would mention is an interesting phenomenon in recent years: um, free in store gigs. So they're effectively live performances that people aren't charged to attend, but they're effectively advertising um, the product, whether that product is a recorded output. Also, it's sometimes, I mean, here in Oxford, for instance, bands play at truck often, truck store before mm, they yeah. play at the Academy or elsewhere. Um, Rough Trade East in London has a, a really great selection of, of in-store appearances. Um, they're effectively adverts for gigs that are happening later on in the evening. Um, I think you, one of the things we're also going to talk about is the cost of going to gigs. Yeah. Um, when I was considering this question, you know, what, what makes value for money? Um, I did feel a bit like a, a politician being asked what the price of a pint of milk is in that I've been to so many gigs this year for free because I've been on reviewing duties. It's hard to really yeah. know what the general cost is. But I, um, And for that reason, I'm also wary of bemoaning the sort of disinterest, apparent disinterest in, in live music. Um Simply because I know that I'm in a, in a you and myself, Rob, are in a in a pretty privileged position on this front. Um, what you've got to bear in mind, I think, is that the gig ticket is only part of the cost, isn't it? So yeah. you've got your drinks, you've got your food, you've got your transport. I would kind of begrudge paying more than twenty quid, but I do make an exception every now and again. And for that, I'd, I would hope to have you know two or three bands on support yeah. bands on the bill, really. I, I actually don't think it's too bad. I was thinking about this and yeah, some of the kind of heritage bands that you'll get um, probably reflecting the fact that their fan base are a bit older and maybe earning more money, you know, the likes of kind of Primal Scream and those kind of people are playing it in Oxford or played there recently or about to play there and they're usually about sort of 27, 28 quid. I think Happy Mondays were about that level. But, you know, a lot of bands are actually only about a tenner, you know, we've seen some real mm. bargains this year irrespective of the, the occasional kind of gratis tickets we receive. 
I actually think if you compare it to sort of some comparable things, um, I think it's not too bad the, the the price of live music. I think like compared uh, to cinema, particularly cinema, cinema is usually expensive. even at the the very good Ultimate Picture Palace, which is down the road here, it's usually about sort of nine quid. I'm a member, so it's seven. But you know, when you think that a, a cinema. You can usually see a film at some point in a kind of six-week period around the time it's out, whereas like a band, you know, are only playing like once every sort of couple of years. So, you know, you've really got to be there on the night. And then football is the other one. I mean, you know, if you, you know, compared to paying 27 quid to see Reading lose 5-0 to Fulham, then, you know, I think you're, uh, you're thinking it's actually like anything's good value compared to that, isn't it? So, um, not that I was there, but yes, I mean, yeah. I'd also like to say that the alternative to spending the money on seeing a well-known band is to putting in the time to finding out what are the bands in your area who are playing at a £5 yeah. bills in your, your local pub. Um, that's, a, that's a much cheaper night out, but beer is probably going to be costing you less as well. Um, you're not going to be seeing a Beyoncé-scale stage show, but... You might just find yeah, one of your your favourite bands you've ever heard is is playing every couple of weeks nearby. Yeah, so. this is this is Ronan's line, I think, isn't it? Ronan from Night Shift, who's, who's been on before. Um, you know, he says that you know everyone started off somewhere, and there's a there's a lot of people who will only go to see something once it's got some kind of profile. Whereas you know that if you just take, he, I think he just wishes, and I think it's true that people should just take more of a punt on things yeah. like that. Um, there's always good things going on. I know for a fact that you go to pretty much any five pound bill. In Oxford, probably anywhere, you're going to see at least one thing that you like. Say there's four bands on the bill, you're going to see one thing you like. And I think the £5 is, is actually good value for money in that case. Yeah, so. definitely. Um, just quickly on the um, the frequency of bands appearing, which I just mentioned there. I mean, one thing that I've noticed in the last year or two in particular is that a lot of bands aren't really doing tours. They're just doing like the succession of festivals around Europe. Um I was, I was wondering if you had any examples of that. I couldn't actually think. I think, of I think didn't Radiohead do it this year? I think LCD Sound System certainly did it. I think you know, so they're playing. I mean, it's very much at the higher level. They're not doing small festivals around the UK. They're they're jumping from Primavera to mm. to the one exit festival to whatever you know to Glastonbury, etc. And I, I think it that that seems to be a bit of a trend. You know, um, I find that a little bit irritating. I must admit. Well, I was going to say it, it's <laughs> not to be. Too self certainty, but it's a bit of a problem for the likes of me and Brian who've got young children because yeah. you, you can get a night off to go to a gig without too much trouble, but getting a weekend to go to a festival and see someone yeah. is that much more complicated, mm. it's that much more of an investment. I still think, as I said in the festivals episode uh, a few, few months back, that festivals are very good value for money when you break down how much you can see, but it is a lump sum and it's also a commitment of that time. Yeah, um, whereas a, a one off night gig is, is, is much easier to go to, I think. Um, I would I would have thought that yeah most bands probably it's more profitable for them to do a probably to to tour and I mean it's harder work obviously and more of a time commitment but you think it's it's pretty better just to mm. well I quite like a festival so this doesn't bother me too much mm. I mean, no, no I'm not saying I don't like festivals I'm but just if saying it's a band you really want to see and they're the only band on the bill you really yeah. want to see you want to be paying 150 quid no no, yeah. no you know I think that well that, that's, a, that's that's true. Yeah. No, no one was going to go to Wilderness this year and see Flame and Nips, were they? For that? No, 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 no. So um, anyway, it's just an observation. We we touched on it earlier. Bands going on earlier, you know. I mean, I must admit, I had a really particularly miserable experience probably twenty years ago now when I went to see Transglobal Underground at the Astoria. Great band, but they didn't come on to about midnight. And luckily, there was a night bus to where I lived in North London. But you know that this sort of willful waiting ages to come back on I mean that's they sit that seems a long time ago now now it seems that you actually almost know the times in advance it's often posted up whereas before they used to play fun and a bit of a bit of a game with with the punters to see make sure they were in there early or etc um is it it seems that a lot of this stands kind of noise you mentioned this in relation to the point in cardiff um any thoughts on this you i know? think it's also down to um often uh the corporate venues like the academy um they have club nights so they they mm. need they need to get everyone out by 10 o'clock so there's a 10 o'clock curfew and when you're feeling like you've you've paid money for a gig and you go in and it's a really enjoyable gig but you feel like it might have been slightly curtailed then you come out and find that you're being turfed out because there's lots of students dressed as golfers want to come in yeah uh, it doesn't make you particularly pleased um but, which we uh, did see which we did see yeah, we used to yeah. see most gigs when you come out of the academy on a midweek yeah, and that um, was only neil we used to on the podcast <laughs> so, yeah 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 um I mean i think with them being a bit earlier sometimes it can be difficult to get out in time for the start of it um 
but it's not necessarily a problem if that's if the early start is well publicised, which isn't always the case. But if it is, then I think that that's okay. Um, what I would say is that the uh, your point as well is that if because it's um, because it's st- on slightly earlier, it means the earlier finish, which means that you can probably still get public transport, which is now quite yeah. good. Given I'm not living in Oxford, and if 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 you're not living within walkable distance then it's actually quite good I guess yeah. I, I, I think as a band you want to be on when your audience has had about three beers so <laughs> really yeah it's, it's a sweet it's, spot yeah I mean three four five beers and everyone's in the mood and, and, and people are going to be not listening to any bum notes so if, if the gig is starting at seven and finishing at half nine you're probably just going to be the warm up for somebody's night which is, is less good um, you know I, I think at the, the academy recently we were at a gig that finished up at around ten o'clock which did feel a bit odd. Mm. Yeah, um, I think that's a standard thing for. for it does give you gigs. a chance to go and get a decent pint. Of that is true. That is true yeah. Afterwards, we. Um, I remember back in the day, um, you and me, Brian, used to go to gigs at the cellar. I remember going to see Oxes and and a few other things at the yes. cellar. And the gigs that were on there at that time used to regularly finish at midnight. And I remember thinking, this is great because you get three or four band bill in a great venue, um, some great shows, and then I could walk back afterwards. But if those gigs were happening now. I'd be stuck unless it was a, I think, a Friday or Saturday and there's a night bus mm-hmm. I can get. So, mm-hmm. or you, or you end up driving. So, it's all kind of swings and roundabouts, really. But I did some of those gigs were were brilliant, and it was nice that you came out and you felt properly late when they yeah. finished. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, our podcast recording studio is actually only two hundred yards from the much mentioned uh, <laughs> O2 Academy. Um, final question in this section is really about encores. Um, are they a charade, or do you enjoy them? So, well, some of them you, you can tell the band are have already planned to do it. They know which songs they're going to do. Yeah. They, they leave their amps switched on when they walk off stage. Sometimes the, everyone in the room is kind of standing there, and their backs are a bit tired, and they've heard enough of the band, and they, they know they have to wait because there's <laughs> another bit that's meant to come out. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I think I think sometimes if you want to see more of the band, that's fine. If they're saving the three songs that you really want to hear till the very end in order to make sure everyone stays in the room, then I think that's a bit cynical. But you do sometimes see spontaneous encores that the band will walk off and the crowd is, is just mad to hear more songs. And that, that's a really nice moment when that happens. Um, if you've got these very strict time limits, then that can happen. But um, yeah, I have seen a fair few quite orchestrated encores and... You know, it, it's not it's not quite magical when you, when you see it happen. There's usually one biggie in there. I think um, you have one biggie song kind of kept back, so which completely takes away all the kind of the anticipation of whether they're going to stay on that long. Right. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. sometimes you see a band will come back on and they'll play something really interesting first up. So something that's a song they've never played before, or something that they've not played for a long time. Um, but yeah, there's usually something big being saved up. I, personally, I think it's a bit of a it's a bit of a charade, isn't it? Yeah. But I do, I do quite like it as a as a sort of ridiculous tradition. Um, when a sort of band returns to to deliver what they've been purposefully holding back, and in a weird way, it feels like you're getting like added value for money yeah. when actually they could have just put it on in the set. I guess. But um, we've seen a couple of games. we saw Amber Arcades, didn't we? No, no, you no, were Amber Arcades. Um, I think I've seen one or two other people do this recently, but they literally got to the end of the set. This is in the cellar, and there's not really anywhere to go when you come off stage. And they got to the end of the set and said, "Well, this is where we would go off for the encore, but we're not going to do that. Just pretend we've gone off, and here's another song." So they they kind of had a, a formal encore, but without actually leaving the stage. Yeah. So I think it's it's understood as it just it's, it's a bit of a farcical thing, but people still like to do it I think yeah I mean generally I mean I feel that once the lights are on and they put the music over the tannoy it's like a message to get out yeah. audience yeah. but yeah. the exception to that and I think I don't know if it was you Ben but I was speaking to someone that Eels with the exception of I saw a festival hall once in London and they must have come back for about five encores yeah. and by the end there were about three people in there yeah. you know I mean it was very good but you know it's uh, so you can't always predict no I, I think having, having spontaneity on stage is really what live performance is about you know if you can see a band who aren't just rehearsed to the point of being robots, where there's a potential for a disaster. That kind of makes it a bit more exciting. It, it, there's a, you'll have a bit of a giggle if somebody snaps a string or if somebody's out of tune. Um, and this, I remember seeing Fugazi play years ago, and they have this thing where they, they just seem to be making up the set list as they go. Yeah. They know each other so well as musicians that they just launch into it, and there's this That's unspoken good. communication. And, and that, that does transfer to the, the crowd. That brings everyone into what's happening. Um, and if you have this structure, like with a with a patently obvious ploy to get everyone into a, an encore and that sort of thing. It, it, it does sort of undermine that, that feeling that we're all here doing this thing live. Anything can happen. 
Yeah. I am um, the most memorable encore I think I've ever seen was Godspeedy Black Emperor at the Hackney Ocean in mm. 2002. Good venue, by the way. Yeah, um, yeah. And uh, they played a, probably about two, two and a half hour set um, and then went off and then came on and played a half hour long encore, a single song encore, of course. Mm. Um, then went off and then came on and played a half hour long encore and then went off and everyone was turning to go leave the venue. And then they came on and played another half hour encore. And I think about, probably about 15 or 20 minutes into that third one, I just thought, I've got to get a tube, otherwise I'm never going to get back to my friend's house where I was staying. Mm. And it was a bit of an endurance test. It was brilliant, but they were playing to reduce numbers each time because, um, I mean, it's, it's a long old gig, a long old gig. And Ocean, which was a good venue back in the day, I that wasn't anywhere near a tube either. So, you no, know, no, you no, can't, no. You know, you've got your work cut out getting back from there. Okay, great discussion, fellas. Um, feedback welcome on, on Twitter, Facebook and um, other places. We'll read out the coordinates at the end. But moving on now to Album of the Month. It's been out about a month now. Um, and that's the Honeyblood album, Babes Never Die. Um, ben, I think you're going to lead the discussion yeah, here. Um, okay, so we've, we've picked uh, Babes Never Die by Honeyblood. Um, so Honeyblood, uh, formed by a Scottish Scottish pair, Stina Marie Claire Tweeddale, who's um guitar and vocalist, uh, and Sean McVicker is a drummer. Um, they bonded over a love of the American band Best Coast, which I think you can hear in the in the music. Um, the self-titled first album was recorded with Peter Cattis, who's best known for his work with um, Interpol and The National. Um, but he's also produced fellow Scots, Frightened Rabbit, We Were Promised Jetpacks and The Twilight Sad. Um, we Were Promised Jetpacks and The Twilight Sad, uh, also label mates of um, Honeyblood on uh, Brighton-based label Fat Cat. Um, it's quite interesting, the, the nature of their label at the minute. It used to be quite synonymous with sort of left-field avant-garde things, but actually I think they're, they're kind of tending more towards indie these days, more, more accessible things these days. Um, so after that first album, McVicker lost um, lost a bit of interest and couldn't face life in the band, so left. Um, and her replacement is is Kat Myers. So she's the the um, this is the first album with her um, playing on it. Um, Babes Never Die. Uh, they have supported quite a lot of people recently, including um, quite recently Foo Fighters. So quite a big quite a big name um, band to be supporting. Um, we're kind of ending the year as we started it with an album as a a slogan as a title and a strong sense of resilience and optimism. We started with Savages Adore Life and this is um, Babes Never Die. Um, so anyway, yeah, first impressions, Brian? My, my very first impression was very favourable. I right. listened to it almost all the way through on my commute back from work. Yeah. Um, and it had an immediate impact. I yeah. just thought this is great, there's a great pace to it. The sound of it is very good, the production is very yeah. nice. Nice punchy drum sounds, strong guitars. Then I listened to it another couple of times and I didn't like it so much. Um, and then I listened to it a couple of times more, and I liked it again. I think I think it is it is a good good album altogether, um, and it holds together well as an album. Um, there are some for me. There are some uh, lower points later on. I think the first three songs are, are, are the very first strong. three proper songs. The first three yeah, proper yeah, songs. Yeah. I carry the intro, um, and then it, it does it does get a little bit um, slower in pace later on. I'd listen to their first album for comparison, and that seems a much less producing comparison. It's much yeah. more like a. You, it feels much more like somebody sat down with the guitar and wrote some songs and then the bass and drums were put on top afterwards. Whereas, whereas Babes Never Die, it does have a, a bit more of a studio feel. I think that suited some of their songs better than others um, on this album. Um, but overall, I mean, I, I, um, I, I really enjoyed listening to it. Um, they reminded me of Japan Droids a bit in, in a few yeah, songs. Too. Yeah, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Who I'm a fan of. Yeah. Rob? Um, yeah, I thought it's, it's pretty good. I mean, I, I think some comparisons have been made to sort of mid-90s, or early 90s kind of American indie, you know, so whole belly breeders, you know, comparisons to all those bands. Um, But I think they're probably not as experimental as, say, you know, the best of, of that bunch, you know, breeders in particular and throw muses, I would say, you know, sort of like, you know, way superior, really. But I, I would actually say that I think it's actually quite superior to Best Coast. So mm. um, I'm a big fan of Best Coast, I have to say. So I, I kind of, I yeah. think it's... It's probably punchier, I think, than Best Coast. Best Coast yeah. is poppy, but there's there's poppy bits on the album, I think, aren't there? So. Yeah, so I think it's it's pretty good. Um, I think we should devote a whole podcast at some point to the whole concept of a reinvention of the wheel. Yeah. Because 50 years into the rock and roll project, or 60 years into the rock and roll project, how easy is it going to continue to be to innovate, um, you know, 
obviously it would have been a lot easier for the Beatles than it is for anybody now, um, taking nothing away from what they achieved. And, you know, really, this is yet another album where you look at it and you think, right, you know, what's new about this? Answer has to be not a lot. Really. Yeah, no, I agree. There's nothing earth shattering, but I, I had the very similar impression to Brian in that the those first three proper tracks, so that's the title track and um, the two singles, which are Ready for Magic, Ready for the Magic, and uh, Sea Hearts, yeah. are, are, are really, really good, I think. Um, hook laden, right, right on the front foot, sort of instant appeal as well. I was actually quite surprised by it because um, we had a bit of a debate about what to choose, and I think it was just a kind of not a random choice, but um, I, I had heard a little bit about them before and I'd, I'd seen them briefly. Um, but I was quite taken aback by this because the track that I'd mainly heard from the first album was that it's called Bud, um, which is a sort of bittersweet indie pop song, really, with, with quite a sort of a bit of a country edge to it. Mm. Um, so I was quite taken aback by, by how ferocious the times the start of this album is. Um, now, there's a song on the, on the single from the earlier album, first album, called Super Rat, which is actually much more representative, I think. Um, it's got the sort of feistiness and the attitude of this album. Um, and now I would say that listening to, to both, the, the new drummer, Kat Myers, has actually added power to it. I think she's got more sort of intense style. Um, there's, a, there's a boldness to the... And sort of confidence to the music as well as to the uh, to the to the lyrics thing as well. Um, so it's not that first time. Certainly, when I when I when I heard that this band who I knew from the song Bud had been supporting Foo Fighters in stadium tours, I thought how how would that possibly work? But actually, I can see that working quite well on this album. Um, I think uh, yeah. I mean, if you're talking about it sort of slowing down later on, there there are one or two slightly more. I wouldn't say. I don't know. Walking at midnight, I think the sixth track. I'm not particularly keen on. It's a bit mm-hmm. of a dud. It kind of suggests that they're that song suggests they're a little bit of a crossroads between the early material and the kind of more stadiumy sort of stuff. Yeah, I, polished. I agree. That's not my favourite. It's track not a great all. song now, no. um, but it, it suggests that they they could kind of go in two different directions from this, and that and the difference from the first album suggests they're going in that direction possibly. Um, what did anyone any any sort of thoughts on on lyrical content or uh... it was quite quite literal quite straightforward yeah. Yeah, which was which was nice in a lot of a lot of songs that made it a bit more affecting and then some other ones other songs it, it felt a little bit uh, overly simplistic I think yeah um, and some of the some of the hooks were a bit repetitive as well ly- lyrically speaking um, I mean on on the whole I, I thought it was it was it's a strength of, of the album that that kind of songwriting but um, yeah if if, if you're into Deep metaphors and it, it's not unlike best coast, I think, in that sense. And it's quite it's all on the surface, really. I think. Yeah. But, I mean, I, I, I was going to just mention a couple of things, which was um, there's a there's a sort of slight storytelling twist to a couple of songs. In that, love is a disease sounds like a a very negative song, but actually she's then singing that she doesn't want the cure, which is quite a, I think quite a it's you know it's, it's simplistic, but it's quite a sweet twist. And yeah. then but then later on, cruel kids. Um, when she's singing about wanting to intentionally cause pain to a partner, but then later on it becomes that it's actually realising it's a way of inflicting pain on herself. I think it's quite, again, that's got quite a good twist to it. That's the kind of token ballad, I think, really. Not mm. token ballad, because I think it's a very good song. Um, but I think there's there's some slight complexity with those, but it is, yeah, like you say, it's, it's generally on the surface, I think, isn't it? It's, it's sort of fairly accessible lyrics. Yeah, they're, they're not after driving when it comes to no, using no. strange words. Regurgitating <laughs> the, the uh, thesaurus, yeah. Okay, well thanks to Brian and for coming in for the first time and hopefully we'll have you on again and, and to Ben as well. Um, we'll be back probably only in a couple of weeks or so, although obviously when you listen to the podcast means that it's a movable feast in yeah. terms of when you know when, when you listen to it um so kind of over the um the christmas period we're hoping to get one in before the end of the year and um, we're looking at producing a list of our end of year top 10 lps as voted for by all our appearance makers on the blog on the pod and i can tell you now that it's going to be a very varied slice of the year's offering and i'm quite proud actually of the result because it's by no means going to be that predictable um we can be contacted at soundingboard at gmx.com. Um, on Facebook, if you search, and Ben's done a good job of maintaining that page. 
Um, we hope to produce our customary uh, Spotify playlist um, as yes. a result of, of the pod. <clears throat> Usually follows like a week or two after we've recorded. And then probably the main place where people have been interacting with us is on Twitter, which, as I've mentioned before, is at Sandalwood69. Have fun. Abianto. <laughs>